All right, in terms of announcements, while everybody's finding their seat, uh, just a reminder that Chaffer Seminary still has their um, registration open, and it will be open until, I think, the 25th or 26th, something along in there that week. The Monday the 25th is when classes for the spring semester officially start. And if you are a member of a church that is a r- regular supporter uh, significant su- financial supporter of Chaffer Seminary, then um, you get a chance to take two courses at no charge for tuition. There's Every school has student fees, and the first time you sign up, you have to pay a certain fee for the whole thing, but the whole it only comes to 40 or $50, and you get uh, some great courses, and they've got some great courses uh, this semester, and of course, whether you take it for credit or take it just as an audit under those situations, it really doesn't matter. So you can sign up, and it gets you access to certain parts of the material, but we're posting that on the DVM website anyway, uh, so that people here can uh, download the notes and other information that I'm putting together and posting for the course. Also, we'll have our next men's prayer breakfast on Saturday, February the 13th. And on the 14th, that Sunday is when we have our annual congregational meeting. And then the other thing is about the Chafer Conference, that that is scheduled for March 8th through 10th. So we need volunteers. So you can go, uh, go to the website and uh, sign up for as a volunteer. And then if you're interested in going to Israel, same thing. We do not have any more information right now. Everything over there is topsy-turvy because they're still not allowing anyone in. And until they get to a point in their vaccination program, they're not going to make a hard and fast decision on opening up. So that means that we're not going to be having any more information than what we have now until they make the government makes some decisions about letting reopening tourism. So we all just have to be patient and wait. Sort of like Scripture says something about patience and waiting on the Lord, so we're waiting on Israel. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit, and so because we have probably sinned in the last however long it's been since the last time we confessed sin, we always start with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, hopefully keeping short accounts. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just thankful we can come before your throne of grace because our Lord Jesus Christ has split the veil, he has removed the barrier, he has opened the way, and we can have an intimate relationship with you, come directly to you in prayer. 
Now, Father, we're thankful for the way that you've watched over this co- congregation over the last uh, 16 years almost, and the way you have provided for us in many, many different ways. And Father, during this time of the pandemic, the time of many people getting ill, uh, we are grateful that none have been uh, seriously ill, that none have. You have not taken anyone home during this time, although we know that you arranged the time, the manner, and place of our death. And so whether it's with COVID or a heart attack or some other means, we know that when uh, you have determined that time, you'll use one means or another. But Father, we do pray because this week it seems like we've heard of several people in the congregation who've been exposed or they have tested positive. And thankfully, everyone has mild cases and everything seems to be developing fine. And so, Father, we just pray that you'd strengthen them and and, uh, their health. And uh, for those who may have been exposed, we pray that you would watch over and protect them as well. And now, Father, as we come together to study your word, we know that we live in a wicked and perverse generation, and we are to be lights. That means we have to understand the truth of our views more than any anything and anyone else. We need to truly understand what, what your word is teaching and why it is teaching it, and make sure that what we are learning is your word, and what we are believing is your word, and not so many of these ideas that float around in different evangelical groups that are thought to be biblical but really are are not derived from the scripture. So help us to be biblical, to read the word, to memorize the word, to hide it in our hearts. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, you'll help us to see God's plan and purpose uh, as it's demonstrated in the past, will be demonstrated in the future. And because we know who you are, you are working these things out today, and we're, you are working them all together for good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Second uh, P- uh, Peter, rather, Second Peter chapter 2. Forgot to get my Bible out tonight. Second Peter chapter 2, and we're going to continue our, uh, our study this evening in this particular chapter. And so last time we looked at the episode of the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6, and tonight we're going to review that briefly and then move forward into the next example that Peter uses in order to demonstrate that, yes, God indeed does judge. Sometimes people think that, well, he sure waits a long time. He does. It's part of grace. And he does wait, and we are to trust in him because his timing is always perfect. And we have trouble with that because we want things done on our timetable, and God's timetable uh, operates on a slightly different clock. And so he understands all the data, and he always makes the right decision. And we'll see a passage either tonight or next week, depending on how long it takes us to get through some of this material, uh, where Abraham asked this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? That's a great question, and it is phrased in such a way as to assume that the answer is yes. He'll always do the right thing. And we just don't know. We're like Job. We haven't a clue as to how to understand all of the all of the information. So last time, 
we got into this section, and I want to go back just a minute and look at verse 4 as we pick up on this. Tonight we're looking primarily at Noah, a preacher of righteousness. It's a key phrase. But I wanted to go back to, actually, I didn't make a slide on this, uh, to verse 3. wanted to go back to verse 3. Verse 3 answers the question that they were probably asking as to why in the world does God let these false teachers uh, get into our congregations and cause the disruption that they're causing? Why hasn't he judged them yet? And that's what he says in verse 3. He says, by covetousness. So that's the, that is explaining the motivation behind the false teachers. You have to follow the money. And it's just amazing when you get into some of the evangelical circles today, and I use that term very, very loosely, that there is some horrific false teaching, and it lines up so well with what goes on in this passage. It's motivated by money. There is a whole a whole theology out there that has been around since the... Uh, since the 40s within evangelicalism, but before that it was in sort of a more mainstream sort of mind control type of mentality, and I'm not going to get into all those details, but this can trace its way back to uh, transcendentalism and some other philosophical schools in the 19th century, and then they were brought into... Uh, charismatic or Pentecostal Christianity in the late 40s uh, by Kenneth Hagin Sr. He just, and it's been demonstrated, I'm not giving my opinion, it has been demonstrated in a number of scholarly works where they have put on column next to column showing how he completely uh, plagiarized from the writings of a man named Kenyon and who is talking about all this positive confession and name it and claim it language and everything like that came right out of this sort of transcendental background mentality that you can just determine your own reality. doesn't sound a whole lot different from what's going on in the judges. You make up what's right or wrong, you're determining your own reality. And so this whole uh, prosperity gospel and that goes, everybody worships prosperity. It goes back to Baalism in the, in the ancient world and other uh, forms of those uh, ancient religions. They were worshiping fertility, which is just another way of talking about prosperity. Baalism and the sacrifice of, of, of infants in the fiery arms of Moloch or Chemosh was just the ancient pagan version of the prosperity gospel. And it's always involved with sexual immorality and it's involved with uh, a lot of illicit handling of money because it's motivated by that. And that is exactly how Peter starts by saying, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. And now what's interesting here is that the Greek word for exploit is the word emporuomai, emporuomai, and it comes from the noun emporia. Do you hear the English word in emporia? Emporia. 
And an, what is an emporium? It is a market. It is a place where you go and you trade. You trade money for goods or you trade goods for goods. It's a, play, it's a marketplace. It's a place where you trade. And in fact, this, this verb that is used here in verse 3, they will exploit you in terms of taking advantage of you in terms of tr- it's a trade metaphor. And that word uh, emporia, the, the noun form, is used in an interesting passage in Ezekiel 28, verse 16. Now, not too long ago, we studied Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I said, always remember this, 14 times 2 is 28. Those are the two passages that deal with the fall of Satan. And Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 16 is addressed to the king of Tyre, who is the one through whom Satan is influencing Tyre. And Tyre was a great mercantile center. It was a great port in the ancient world, and all of the caravans that came from the east, from Persia, further east, would come to Lebanon, which is where Tyre is, and then they would put their goods on a on a ship, and they would be taken somewhere. So it's a, a trading center, and God uses that metaphor in reference to explaining what happens in Satan's original sin. And He says, "By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within." And the word there is in the Hebrew is rakula, and it's trafficking in goods and services, in merchandise or trading. It is uh, buying and selling and trading of goods. And when the, when the uh, rabbis in Alexandria translated that word into Greek for the Septuagint, guess what word they used? They used the word emporia. So there's a d- direct connection between what's going on here, that these false teachers are really the devil's disciples, and they're doing the same kind of thing as they're trading uh, for their advantage against the truth and against God. And so that's what sets the stage. And then Peter goes on to say, for a long time their judgment has not been idle. Now, we look out there and we may say, for example, in the ancient world, because last time we studied about the uh, angels that sinned during the time of Noah, and I pointed out that they began this attack on the genetic purity of the human race very early. They didn't wait until just the time of Noah. They had started this uh, many generations earlier. That's why they were able to... Uh, to infiltrate and to change up the the DNA in the human race so early. I mean, if they had waited till 10 generations and gone by, there would have been millions of people that would have been very difficult. So they would have uh, instigated their plot very early, probably within the first four or five generations. And uh, so this had gone on for some time, and people might have been asking that question, well, why doesn't God bring judgment? Well, he waited to the appropriate time, and he did that at the time of Noah, which is the focal point of the second example, which is what we're, gonna, what we're going to be studying uh, this evening. So this is the idea, is that God waits for the perfect time. His timing is always perfect, and it has maximum effect 
because there's a whole lot more going on when we think about the God's judgment uh, than than we can ever imagine in terms of the all of the secondary tertiary uh, consequences of the action. So verse 3 goes on, and I pointed out, and we studied it several lessons back uh, in several months ago, the deceptive words there is a, a um, Greek word plasso, where we get our word plastic, and it has to do with fabricated words, things that are made up. It's translated deceptive, so it looks like we have the word or the concept of, distru- of deception several times through here, but they represent different different uh, Greek or Hebrew words, or excuse me, Greek words. And so we learn from this that God has a plan, and he knows when his judgment is going to come. Uh, there, the, the judgment isn't idle. It's working its way out, and their destruction uh, does not slumber. And so God then is going to bring in several examples. We have the example of God's judgment on the fallen angels who left their first estate. According to uh, Jude 5, that's Second uh, Peter 2, 4 here, He's going to not spare the ancient world. He will turn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He'll deliver Lot, all of which is illustrating the point that God knows when to judge, whom to judge, and God is faithful to deliver those who are his. So we go back and we look at the fact that at some point before uh, Genesis 1-1, God created all of the angels. We don't know how many, myriads upon myriads, uh, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions. And a subset of those angels rebelled against God. But when God laid the foundation of the earth, uh, we're told in Job 38, 4 through 7, verse 4 starts off with the rhetorical question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes on in that vein, and then um, verse 7 says, when the morning stars sang together. So this when goes back to that point when God laid the foundation of the earth. The morning stars, that is, the angels sang together, and all the sons of God. That's a key word tonight, is all. Texans say it like oil, but it's all, and it means uh, every single one of them. So there is a unity among uh, the angels, among the sons of God. And so God uh, is going to bring judgment on them when they uh, carry out this plot against the human race. And as we looked at it last time in verse 4, reads, if God did not spare angels... And this is an important word here because it's repeated in verse 5. And remember last time I pointed out that this is a long sentence. It starts at the beginning of verse 4, and it doesn't end until the middle of verse 10. Why somebody split the verse or split the sentences in the middle here, I don't know. They should have had verse 11 start with the last part of verse, the last half of verse 10, but... Nobody was asking me at the time. So they did not spare the angels when they sinned, but they cast them into Tartarus and delivered them to chains of darkness, which is their judgment. Now, this occurred, according to this verse, when they sinned. 
Now, it's interesting. You look at different translations. Some translations that you look at will say, who sinned? That God did not spare the angels who sinned. And there's not a uh, there, there's not an article with angels there, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't refer to them in as as definite because that's possible in Greek. You don't have to have the article for the noun to be be definite. So it's uh, but it it also can be taken as a temporal participle, which is how I take it because of what we'll see in a minute over in First Peter. Now I think that's important because you have some people coming along today. Uh, who are saying that that possibly the Nephilim and this uh, demonic incursion continued after the flood, and that absolutely could not have happened. This is not the place to to pin it, because it could be when they sinned or the angels who sinned, and then they're going to be cast into uh, Tartarus and into this deep, gloomy darkness of the uh, of Tartarus, and we point, I pointed out last time that you have these three places in Second Peter two seventeen, Jude six, and Jude thirteen that fit uh, together and complement each other. And so here we learn that that there is another area of Sheol that is the area of that is the area of of Tartarus, which is for these angels. Jude six says that they're angels who did not keep their first domain, that is their original position in immaterial bodies, but they left that abode. They left it. They took on. Uh, human bodies for the purpose of enjoying sexual relations with with uh, uh, human women, and they are in judgment. And this is the same thing that Jude, Jude thirteen says. So it connects all of these, all of these together. And then in First Peter three twenty says that they were disobedient. Who that is? These angels once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So that's the really important passage. It's that uh, that temporal uh, particle there, when, that makes it important, that they were disobedient when God was waiting in the days of Noah, not after the days of Noah. And the Jude 6 passage talks about they didn't keep their first domain, That that's their first in order their first sphere of influence, and they left that habitation or dwelling place, gave up that body. And then there's a comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll get into some later. The cities around them, since they, that is the cities, in the same way as these angels, masculine, plural, uh, Part, uh, pronoun there has to refer back to a masculine noun angels and not to a feminine noun uh, polis which is which is cities so that tells us that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is an imitation of the sin of the angels and they're the same kind they're they're sexual perversion and then we saw the result of this that it uh, impacted the DNA set up in the human race. They they gave the women gave birth to uh, offspring that were giants. They're called nephilim, but nephilim is not a technical term. 
for a hybrid offspring. It is simply a word, we would say monster or giants or something of that nature. And that's because it's used after the flood. It's used in Numbers 13 when the spies went into the land and saw giants in, in the land. So this has, that has nothing to do with the uh, demonic involvement. So uh, Genesis 6, 1 talks about this timing when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So it's not later, it's not three or four hundred years later, it's when that began. So it places this incursion very, very early in that period, uh, probably within a couple of hundred years before the human race got very, very large. And so that's the view that takes the term sons of God as a technical term for angels. So we, we skipped past that, uh, some of this last time, but just emphasizing that this term b'nai means sons. Ha is a definite article. Elohim, sons of God, is a technical term. Sometimes it's b'nai elim, as in uh, Psalm 29.1, the mighty ones, but it's the sons of God. Oh, you sons, b'nai elim. You have heard of a book in a movie called Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston was the Ben-Hur that most of us are familiar with. That individual was a fictitious character that was, uh, that was developed by the author of that story, Lou Wallace, who was a very famous uh, general in the Northern Army during the war between the states. Later, he was sent to uh, Lincoln County in in, in uh, New Mexico in order to deal with and bring bring law and order to the mess that was going on with uh, with Billy the Kid. And if you saw the John Wayne movie Chisholm, that's all about that time period. And Lou Wallace was set in to deal with all of that, uh, pro- the problems that were caused there in the Lincoln County Cattle Wars. And he spent many years wrestling with the truth of Christianity, and when he was finally uh, convinced by the evidence that Christianity was true and that Jesus was who he said he was, he wrote this as a historical novel to talk about the gospel and who Jesus Christ was. It is called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And the name of the character is Judah Ben-Hur, Judah the son of Hur. So that B-E-N when, that you see in a Jewish name is simply, it's like at the end of our word, we call somebody Bill Johnson or Williamson. Uh, that just indicates the son of William or the son of John or whatever. And so that's what this, B'nai is sons of, and Elim is just a short form of Elohim for God. So these uh, fallen angels, are all of the angels are called the B'nai Ha Elohim or B'nai Elohim. You also have that same term in Psalm 89.6. And it's comparison to holy ones, other terms for angels. The main word for angels is malach, which means messenger. But these are just some of the other words that are used, some of the synonyms uh, that are used to describe uh, these angels. So Genesis 6, 4 ends talking about these uh, giants that were on the earth in those days. Now, that gives us a review from last time. And we look at this particular passage in Second Peter 2, 4 through 8. And I want you to 
pay attention to this. Something glitched on my slides, and I'm going to go in here and fix it because I've noticed this twice already that something that I had um, had correct earlier is not correct anymore. So we're just going to um, fix it so that these things can be taken care of. Okay, come on. Okay. Um, why isn't that doing that? Okay, hit that. Okay, I wanted to get the whole verse on there at the end. All right, let's get that one's fixed. And now fix this one. Uh, that'll do it. Okay. Here we go. So I want you to notice that if you look at 2 verses verses 4 and 5, chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, chapter 2 begins with this conditional clause which we looked at last time. It's the beginning of the sentence. This is the if clause. It's a long if clause. goes all the way down to the end of 8. For if God did not spare and God... Uh, did not spare in verse 5, and God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, and it goes on. Then the Lord knows. So that's the concluding section in verses 9 through the first part of 10. So we're just trying to understand everything that God is saying in this first part here. Number one, if God did not spare the angels. Number two, and did not spare the ancient world. And I want you to notice that did not spare in both places, is, that's the same word in, in the Greek. And so by translating it the same way in English for a change, the translators bring out this comparison. And then it introduces another word to talk about that group, and that's the word the ungodly. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I am reading in some passages of Scripture, especially in the Psalms, and the writer of the Psalms talks about the ungodly and also talks about the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes I'm confused. Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? Is he talking about those who are moral and those who are not moral? I, I just don't understand. Well, what we're going to see here tonight and next week is it's very clear how the Bible uses this language. And the ungodly describes unbelievers. It's in contrast we see with the righteous. So in verse 5, introduces the word ungodly, but in verse 6, it talks about those in Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example, that last phrase, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So it's very clear. We move from those who God does not spare in 4 and 5 the group that is not spared is described by the term ungodly in 5 and 6. And then we get to 7 and 8, and they are in contrast to the righteous. The righteous are believers. I'll demonstrate that as we get into this. We see that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness, and then Lot is called righteous Lot, I'm not going to ask a show of hands. If you just read Genesis uh, 18, 19, and 20, you would not come away talking about righteous Lot. But he is called righteous Lot in the New Testament. And so that gives us a huge clue of how 
righteous is used in describing people in the Old Testament. He's called a righteous man in verse 8. So the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake in verse 7. Some scribe didn't make a mistake in verse 7. He repeats it in verse 8 to make sure we all understand that as far as God's concerned, Lot was a righteous man. And that takes us to, it's going to take us to the whole doctrine of imputation of, of righteousness. So this, this is the general structure here. We're moving from the angels who sinned, the fallen angels who left their first estate, and to remember that those fallen angels are not all of the fallen angels. Those fallen angels are a subset of the fallen angels. So there were, let's say, several uh, million angels, hundreds of millions of angels that God created. A third of those followed Satan in his revolt against God. And then a subset, maybe 10% of those who followed Satan in his rebellion are these angels who sinned. This isn't talking about the original fall. This is talking about what happened in Genesis chapter 6. And so these angels, these fallen, are sometimes called fallen angels. Sometimes they're called evil spirits. Sometimes they're called demons. So there's different terms that relate to them, but they are the angels. They are a subset of the angels that followed Satan in his in his revolt. And so these that sinned at that time are cast into Tartarus where they will remain until they are judged along with Satan at the end of the millennium. They are there. It is like being in jail waiting your sentence to go to prison. So let's look at Second Peter. Two, five, who, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So it makes this difference between these eight people who are righteous and the ungodly who are not. And what we learn from this is righteousness here is a positional righteousness which then became a capacity righteousness. It, 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 it's, it, sometimes that can bleed over into talking about their, their life, but it begins as just, uh, po- as just positional righteousness. And in Genesis 7-1, the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household... For you alone. Now, even though he's using you in the singular here, it's referring to his household. It is using that pronoun in a collective sense to describe Noah's household that's getting on the ark. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. He's not saying here that Noah's righteous and his wife and kids and their wives, his three sons and their wives are not righteous. He's looking at all of them as being righteous. They are positionally righteous. Why? Because of faith. And we learn that from a couple of different passages, one of which is in Hebrews eleven seven that righteousness is according to faith and not according to works. 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, I want to do one thing here before I get too far away. Second Peter 2.5 is really point one, okay? Because you're going, wait, wait a minute, you went to two and three, where's point one? Well, the, fir- the verse was the first point. Um, so it's by faith that Noah does what he does. He's obedient to God, he builds the ark, and he prepares the ark according to God, God's instructions. The result is that he receives an inheritance from righteousness, and that righteousness is not his, not an experiential righteousness. It's one that is according to faith. We know that if you look at Ephes- uh, excuse me, Genesis 15.6, there's an editorial comment by Moses. Genesis 15, 1 through 5 is talking about Moses, I mean, Abraham trying to convince God that he, don't do something difficult like make me able to have a child again. Just take Eliezer here, who's my faithful servant, and make him my son. Let me adopt him, and everything will be okay. And God says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. You're going to have a child uh, from your own body and Sarah's body. And then Moses inserts a, a little statement there. And it doesn't necessarily read like an editorial comment in English, but the verb tense shifts from what you have in the first five verses to what you have in verse 6. And that tells you that that he's talking about something that happened a long time before. And he says, and Abraham believed God. Now, it's not believing God about the son, it, it should be translated, Abram had already believed God. It's taken us back to his original salvation. Abram had already believed God, and it was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. And Paul quotes that in Romans 4 when he's developing uh, the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so this righteousness that we're talking about is a righteousness that is positional. It is on the basis of faith, and faith alone, not on the basis of a moral change that takes place in us. That was what Roman Catholicism taught, that there's something called infused righteousness, and that every time you participate in the, in, in the sacraments, you get a little more grace, and you become a little more righteous, and you don't never know when you have enough to uh, to please God. But in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, who'd been a Roman Catholic priest, and John Calvin, others who'd all been brought up in Roman Catholicism, recognized that that wasn't what the Bible taught. The Bible taught that you were justified simply by faith in the promise of God for salvation. Uh, so... Uh, Noah is righteous because he's trusted in the Old Testament promises of a future Messiah who will solve the sin problem. His sons and their wives have all trusted in the Old Testament gospel. His wife has trusted in the Old Testament gospel. And so they are the ones who are going to be delivered. And that's the idea that we have here 
in uh, these verses, go back to verse uh, Genesis 7-1. Was it 7-1 or 11-7? The salvation of your household has to do not with... Uh, not with um, spiritual salvation at this point, but for the deliverance from the cataclysm of the Mabul, which is the flood. That's the only time, only thing that's referred to in the Bible by that word Mabul. It uses a distinct word to describe Noah's flood. It's not doesn't use the same word that you talk about when we got flooded in Hurricane Harvey or any other. Uh, flood. That's that would be a the, the main word for flood. But mabul is a distinctive one. But what's interesting is the connection between Noah and righteousness. He we've seen in our patch, pass, passage. He is the uh, preacher of righteousness. We see in Hebrews eleven seven that he is an heir of righteousness. We read in Ezekiel fourteen. 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. They were in the country. They'd only deliver the people who themselves by their, their own righteousness. And that's repeated in verse 20. So it's talking about positional righteousness or that which is imputed. So I want to take a minute to just talk a little bit about uh, the flood of Noah, and I have no idea what happened. All my slides got all, I mean, that's supposed to be centered, and I don't know how that happened. I mean, it's been one of those days. It took me about 45 minutes this morning to even get my um, computer all squared away to go forward. Okay, so this is the size of the ark. The ark is huge. Look at that. Look at comparison down here, this young lady down here is Caitlin. Caitlin is standing in front of this, and that's how huge it is, 450 feet by 75 feet, and I'm not sure how high it was, but it's enormous. This is the ark up there in um, in northern Kentucky. And then this gives you a perspective of how long it was. This thing is enormous. It was extremely seaworthy because of its length to width dimensions and its height. So it could have handled uh, any number of uh, uh, waves. Um, We're talking tsunamis that are five or six times as high as anything we've ever seen or we've ever experienced. In fact, what I'm going to do is stop this for a minute. We are going to switch over and I'm going to show you this video. Now, the video is put out by Genesis Apologetics Ministry. This is the short form. This is about two and a half minutes. But there's a longer form. There's one here. um, uh, I don't know if it's not in this side listing here, but there's one that's about uh, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but they've got a very long one. I encourage you to go to YouTube. Just search on Pangea, P-A-N-G, is it G-A or G-I-E-I-A, P-A-N-G, and that's that's talking, that's a term that's been coined, everybody uses it, of what the earth was like when there was one continent before the continental drift. 
And what what the uh, creationist ministries have done is that, and you'll see a couple of parts of this are taken from like um, BBC and some other videos, but they have put together this incredible uh, video that shows what the what it was like on the earth when the flood came. Remember, Genesis six says the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven opened. We can't even imagine the significance of all of that in terms of the the plate technology, uh, tech, plate tectonics, and everything else. And so. If you go to the ICR Creation Museum, I think it's reopened, they have a big globe that's about this big around, and they have a projector on the inside of it, and you can watch that projection from inside of what's happening on the earth, uh, the, the tectonic plates shifting, the continents forming, the water, everything. It's just phenomenal. So this just gives you a hint of this. But most of us, most people I've talked to, and we talk about the flood, have a very, very small view of what the flood was like. So this gives you, maybe this will broaden your horizons uh, just a little bit. We may need to hit the lights, Cheryl. These tsunamis would be three or four or five hundred feet high. No, that was the wrong light. There you go. I don't know how to turn these other lights off. So here you see the plates shifting on top of each other. And then you see what, what that causes on the surface, creating these enormous tsunamis that as the waters are rising, are covering all of the dry land. Well, that just gives you a quick, when you watch the longer one, there's so much more to it. But I thought, well, that's just going to take up too much uh, Bible class time. But that is uh, a way to really. Okay. 
Okay, third point on this is let's look at talking about the chronology of the flood. Most people, when you talk to them, they say, oh, well, the flood was 40 days and 40 nights. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights at the beginning, but that's that's, that's just the beginning. They entered the ark on the second day or the 10th day of the second month in Noah's 600th year. So I'm just using that. That's our dating on the, on the right side of the slide. They're in the ark for seven days, and then it begins to rain like it had, well, first of all, it had never rained before, and now it's raining like you and I could never imagine it raining. And this goes on for 40 days and 40 nights, but it's not just raining. Remember, the the fountains of the deep have opened, and I believe the mechanics are that volcanic activity, and it throws a lot of volcanic ash and other things up into the upper atmosphere, and that allows water to vapor to condense upon that and to uh, then precipitate out. And so after the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, uh, this the, the the water underneath is still pumping up, and so the water continues to rise for a hundred and ten days. And after a hundred and fifty days, the forty days and forty nights plus the hundred and ten, the ark rests. And this is on the seventeenth uh, day of the seventh month. So this is five months later. But it takes another 74 days to get to the 10th month, uh, three and a half months, before the water begins to decrease. So they're just, they're aground, but the water's not gone. There's dry lands not appearing where they are. And then the tops of the mountains become visible, according to Genesis 8.5, Forty days after that, Noah sends out ravens, and they can't find any dry place to land, so they come back. Seven days later, he sends out a dove. Seven days after that, he sends out another dove. Uh, Forty days, he sends out the raven. Raven doesn't come back. But seven days later, he sends out a dove. Seven days after that, he sends out the second dove, and he releases the third dove, and uh, doesn't return, so he removes the hatch, the ground seems dry, and then God gives the order on day 371 to offload. So it's a whole year, and nothing that they see resembles anything that the planet was like before. So that's just an important thing to be aware of and to think about the flood and what God is doing through Noah and through his family. So one of the things that I want to address here is that if when we use the principle of a plain literal hermeneutic, this passage can only refer to a universal flood. Now, there's a lot of people who come along and try to treat this as a local flood. Part of the problem with that is it doesn't fit the language in the Scripture, number one. Number two, if it's a big local flood, why can't they just take it took it took we don't know how long it took Noah to build the ark, maybe 100 years. And we don't know, um, you know, we, we don't know how long, long that took, but they could easily have rounded up a bunch of animals and gone a long way in 100 years. 
So that that doesn't make any sense to say it's a it's it's a local flood, and then the language of the text is just uh, always emphasizes a universal flood. Fifth point is expressions involving the universality of the flood and its effects. You ought to read through sometime the account that we have in the in the scripture and just highlight. Words like every, all, and whole. They all represent the uh, Hebrew word kol, which means all. And there's, uh, it's used 51 times in these three chapters, 6, 7, and 8. But I think there's about 9 or 10, maybe 11 uses that would not apply to the extent of the flood. Uh, so you have a couple of phrases like in Genesis 6-2 that the sons of God took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So that doesn't relate to the extent of the flood. Or Genesis 6-5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. What's interesting is that's at the beginning of the story. And when you get to the end, the second to last verse in Genesis 8.22, God promises Abram, I mean, excuse me, Noah, and says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So this, this gives you, he uses the word all there while the whole earth remains and that may or may not relate so I've taken those out to get the most conservative number but in 821 it says and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma then the Lord said in his heart I will never again curse the ground for man's sake after the soothing aroma comes from the sacrifice the burnt offering that Noah is offering The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Notice how that statement about man being evil begins the story and ends the story. The flood doesn't remove the sin nature. The the flood doesn't remove the evil nature of man. God's estimate of the, uh, of human beings is that because of sin they are evil we are inherently evil we are not basically good that doesn't mean we can't do relatively good things but that isn't the inclination of our nature our nature is even when we do good things we do it for selfish reasons we do it for uh, reasons motivated by arrogance but when you read through the chapter we realize that the problem is all flesh, not some flesh, not just in Asia, not just here, not just there, but all flesh. We read passages like Genesis 6:12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh had come before me. Notice, all flesh is corrupted and the end of all flesh is before me. So those refer to the same group and it's not a subset. And then God says in verse 17 that 
Uh, he's going to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which there's the breath of life. Everything, that's the word coal again, all that is on the earth shall die. And in verse 19, and of all living things of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Uh, they shall be male and female. So again and again, we have this emphasis on this word all. And chapter 7, verse 3, Noah is supposed to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth, not part of the earth. And in uh, verse 4 of that chapter, uh, God is going to destroy all living things that he has made. And in verse 8, of the clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of all things that creep on the earth. And verse 11 says, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and all cattle and all creeping things, and all birds, and all birds of every sort. So again and again, it's just repeated over 40 times. The word all is stated, all life, all animals, all beasts, all birds, all fish. I mean, it's just everything is going to be destroyed except for what what survives with with Noah. Now, God had gone over 2,000 years without bringing a judgment against the angels, but he does. He brings this judgment, and it is certain at that that particular time. Uh, Just going on in some of these other points I've made, all the mountains under the whole heaven, literally under all of heaven, is inundated under at least 15 cubits. That's 22 feet of water. Mount Ararat is about 17,000 feet, and a 17,000-foot flood is not a local flood. Water seeks its own level. If water got that high, I don't think it got that high. I think there's uplift, and and after everything is covered, then you have this geologic uplift that takes place in all of these mountain ranges. But initially, all the mountains are covered, all the land is covered. And it has that idea of concealing them so that nobody can survive. Uh, In verse 19, also uses a double superlative, all the high mountains under all the heavens. That can't be a local meaning if language means anything. Uh, man's longevity began a long, slow decline when we, and I'm not going to go into all the details of this, but it's always troubled me. When you look at the beginning, it says, God says, but man's days will be numbered to 120. The way I first heard that taught, and the way I've heard a lot of people teach it, is that God was going to give them 120 years before the flood. It's not what it means. It means that God's going to take people who've lived for 900 plus years, which is a lot of time to develop, to get to perfect their evil inclinations, and he's going to reduce the lifespan to around 120 years. And if you look at where the draw out a graph of the declining lifespans after the flood, then they begin to level out around 110 to 120. Uh, Joseph only lives to be 110. But they they level out there. We have people today who live past 100, live into their 110s, but nobody seems to get uh, any further along than that. So man's longevity is cut down, so he's limited in how much evil, uh, evil he can do. 
Uh, ninth point is later biblical writers, Job, Psalm, uh, Isaiah, uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Hebrews, all accept the universality of the flood. It's a worldwide flood. Now, one reason I'm trying to emphasize this is that within our tradition, there are those who sought to assimilate what Scripture said and reach a compromise with evolution and introduce long time periods into history. One of the things they did was they came up with a what I call the old earth gap view between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But, but that didn't come along until the early 1800s. That view had existed for a long time as a young earth gap view. Later writers like Clarence Larkin around the turn of the 20th century, G.H. Pember, uh, there were a few others um, that, that came out with this old earth view. And uh, another one was Arthur Custance, who was a Canadian sociologist. But all of these guys held to a local flood. And the reason is, historically, you either you have one of two floods. Only one thing can be the mechanism for creating fossils and strata. It's either a flood that occurs between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, or it's a flood that occurs in Genesis 6-8. You don't have two because the, the geologic column only shows one catastrophe. And so this, this pretty much puts a nail in the coffin of that, lo- that view because that view was linked to, and I'm not saying that the, the, the view of a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, but that old earth view uh, pretty much had, had the nail put in its coffin because of, of its view of a local flood. It's got to be a worldwide flood, and that's where you have all of the fossils. They're all laid down in the same uh, cataclysmic event. And then, and I, I don't know what happened here. The Lord Jesus Christ, this should be point 10, Lord Jesus Christ accepted the historicity and the universality of the flood. Several times he mentions it, Matthew 24, 37 to 39, and Luke 17, 26 and 27. Noah wasn't a mythical figure. The flood wasn't a mythical event. These were actual historical events. So when we look at our passage from verse 4 to verse 8, we have the certainty of judgment on the angels who left their first estate. That's the term used in, in Jude. Uh, they sinned by taking human wives. God judged them and uh, incarcerated them in Tartarus in chains of deep darkness. Second, he did not spare the ancient world. He eliminates everybody. And the population was... Three, four, some estimate five or six billion people, and only eight people su- survive. God wipes out all but eight. And then what we'll see next time is his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and his deliverance of righteous Lot. And again, we're going to see when we get into righteous Lot that this is a term for those who are positionally righteous, ungodly being the unsaved and righteous Lot, even though he's not a figure of uh, of great spiritual maturity, he is still a believer, and he is called a righteous man, and so he was saved. And we'll get into that next time when we look at that episode beginning 
in with Abraham's question in Genesis 18:23, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this and to understand that you are a righteous judge. You're omniscient. You're omnipotent. You know all the facts, all the details. You know all the consequences. You know just the right time. You know just how to handle everything. And Father, we need to trust you to bring judgment on those who are evil at the right time, and that isn't necessarily according to our timetable. Father, we are to be reminded that we are still involved in this this battle with evil, battle with Satan, the revolt, satanic revolt against you. And Father, what we need to do is to learn to uh, walk by faith, walk by the Holy Spirit, walk in the light, depend upon your word. Challenge us with the importance to know your word, to hide it in our heart, that we might be prepared to face any situation in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.